What's up, everybody? Welcome, welcome to the Articulated Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, April twenty second. Uh, man, I just had an awesome week in Boston, hanging out with uh, with my coworkers for the first time ever, which is pretty awesome. I haven't actually like hung out or been near coworkers in two years, so that was pretty cool. Um, hopefully, you guys got a chance to go out to ODSC and check out some of the talks. If you weren't there in person, hopefully, you got to check out the virtual talks. It was a great event. I met a lot of awesome people. It, it, I met. Ken in person, and he uh, hooked me up with the KNN T-shirt. I also got a chance to um, also got a chance to to meet Cassie. She came and hung out at the pachyderm table for quite some time. She actually left her bag at the pachyderm table. We had to run around the venue trying to find her and get her bag back to her. Um, so Cassie. We're your heroes. I'm, I'm happy to be your heroes. Uh, I'm going to duck out a little bit early uh, in just the next couple of minutes here. But Makiko is going to be taking over the ones and twos. She'll be monitoring not only the chat here, but also the LinkedIn live stream as well for questions. So if you do have questions at any point, feel free to go ahead and just drop your questions in the chat or the comment section. Makiko will take care of it. Serge is in the building. Also got a chance to hang out with Serge and drink uh, some beers with him. That was awesome, man. Uh, yeah, man, it was uh, it was a great event. I'm looking forward to doing this again. I'll be at uh, ML Ops World in Toronto in early June. So if y'all are going to be there, please do come. Uh, it'll be a great event. Uh, be sure to check out the episode that I released today with the one and only data professor, uh, Chanan Nantasinamak. We uh, recorded that episode a while ago. Uh, if you wanted to watch it on YouTube, it's there as part of the live stream. So look in the live stream section and, and you'll be able to find him. Um, but it's also releasing the podcast for you all to hear. That's it for me. I'm heading over to Mikiko. Mikiko, how are you doing today? Hey, 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 everyone. Are you excited to spend an afternoon with the one and only Mickey? Even though there are other Mickeys in the world, I the, only one Mickey is me. So yeah, all are excited for that. I'm excited for it. Oh yeah, dude, I, you do awesome, Mikiko. I'm gonna be looking forward to hearing y'all. Uh, I'll be I'll be watching live and direct. So you'll see me LinkedIn. You might even uh, see me in the YouTube chat. But it's all you. I'm out. Take care, y'all. Very cool. Uh, now also feel free to tag me in the LinkedIn like chat because I'm actually trying to chase down the different sort of you know, videos and all that in um, all the chats. So uh, yeah, so this will be fun. So uh, let's start off with the question of who here was at ODSC? What was the best part of it? And for those who weren't, you know, uh, what would you, if you could have gone to ODSC, what session would you have liked to see? And I think uh, Serge, you were there, right? Yeah, I was. Well, yeah, the my favorite part of ODSC was, you know, meeting colleagues in real life. I've been uh, stuck behind Zoom for two years. Haven't met a single data science scientist in person in all that time. Um, yeah, it's been weird time. So I guess that's in general the, the my favorite thing. Uh, besides that, there were some great workshops um, and keynotes, all sorts of things from NLP um, with Spacey. Um, I've, of all the libraries, Spacey is the one I've worked with the least. So I, I actually was great to get to use that. There also was uh, a, very, uh, a few very good ones on interpretability. As you all know, I really like that subject. <laughs> so I, I um, got a, a few like deep dives into that. Um, and yeah, and, and the keynotes, uh, yeah, of course, 
uh, Ken G's like keynote was amazing. Um, I also like Cassie's a lot. I thought it was very clever the way she organized that. Um, yeah, I, and the rest, it was just like, I, there was a lot of times I wanted to go to a session, but I just got caught in a conversation. I met a lot of people, too many to list here. You know, I, I met all of, of Heartbeat's colleagues, awesome people at Pachyderm. Um, and then I, I hung out with the guys from Selden as well. Very cool guys in Selden. Um, a lot of Emma, you know, I, I have fun hanging out with Emma Lobs, folks. <laughs> you guys are a lot of fun. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, that's, uh, that's my spiel. That's, that's how it went. Yeah, SML ML Ops folks are a little bit nuts because we were like, yeah, why don't we go into this field that's not well defined, that's a little bit crazy, no one knows what they're doing, and everyone comes from everywhere. Uh, kind of like that show. What was it? Um, Welcome to whose line is any whose line is it anyway, where the points don't matter and X Y Z. So that's awesome. Did anyone Drew else? Carey. Get, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did anyone else get a chance to go to ODSC? No, that's okay. That's okay. I won a few years ago. It's awesome, but hopefully we'll have some more in the future. Um, cool. So I don't see any questions queued up in the chat. So if you do have questions, uh, either on LinkedIn or um, over in the chat chat, um, please do let us know. Um, so let me kind of ask another question to, to everyone here. In the last couple of weeks, was there a problem that you ran into? either while working on a data science project or a machine learning model um, or even an analytics project where you learned something new and you thought this was so cool. I wanna go share it with, with, with people randomly, but maybe you didn't post on LinkedIn, maybe you're like a, uh, so does anyone here have like something that they learned that they really loved and they'd love to like share with the, with the group here? Sorry, I wish I did, um, can't think of anything. Well, I think something fun that I learned uh, personally was the fact that, uh, and this is like informally, right? Which is that as much as people talk about online about you know how innovative their companies are or how mature their companies are, in a lot of places there you don't see like not everyone is performing at the most mature best practices stage. You know, so when we're thinking about deploying machine learning models or what have you, uh, there isn't really a whole lot of consensus necessarily on the best way to do it. So for me, I thought that was really kind of interesting. Um, if any of you have been following along with Harpreet's, he's doing the six six days of MLOps. Uh, so I would definitely check out that hashtag. And every single day, he's been sharing something new that he's been learning as part of his role as developer relations over at Packaderm. And there's a really, really lot of cool insights there. And one of the insights that to me that stuck out was the fact that, you know, there's a lot of best practices we talk about in testing, in monitoring, um, you know, in containerization, but every company does it slightly different. But no matter where you go, Kubernetes is very, very important. Everyone talks about that Kubernetes is, is dying out and yet so many companies rely on that to deploy and containerize their machine learning models. So I thought for me, that was personally pretty cool. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's dying at all. Um, I, I, I'm in more and more conversations where they want to drag me into the ML ops side because they know I have the software engineer background, but I, I want to keep it on the down low because I don't want to be dragged into that. <laughs> That's what you get for being in that field, you know. Like I have, they know I used to um, 
the webmaster for a very large online poker site. So, and we, we were getting all the time attacked by hackers and, you know, I had to deal with the load, the, the load balancing and it was all on premise, which make it, made it even more, you know, like crazy. Uh, that was for both security reasons and also because of jurisdictional issues. Um, and so, yeah, uh, but that's, that's all, uh, something I want to keep in the past, <laughs> um, you know, because I, I like it. I, I like performance. I like structure. These are things I like, but at the same time, I wanted to like be more devoted to like, data exploration, you know, rather than just, you know, building stuff, you know, um, at, at some point I'll swing back around, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm involved in the conversations in my company about these things. And I think they're very much important. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's a, it's a hard balance because I think in like, even, even in my team, um, over at MailChimp or MLOps team there, there's a lot of, we we're, we try to figure out what is kind of the trade-off between the exploratory analysis that is important for creating innovation, um, for asking new questions, for sourcing new potential areas of value, but then how do we trade, how do we negotiate the trade-off with also the fact that you know, when we launch a machine learning model or a data science project, we want to make sure that first off, it doesn't break. Uh, secondly, that we're not unfairly biasing uh, against certain segments of the population, for example, um, you know, that we're able to be proactively responsive. So if there's changes in the under underlying distribution of, for example, the um, sales predictions we're making or the marketing campaigns, uh, we want to understand that before essentially it's a little bit too late into the pipeline. But there is this kind of like fine creative tension between, on the one hand, certain parts of the data science process, uh, you do need the flexibility, right, to do the research, to sometimes take a little bit of extra time to ask the hard questions. But at a certain point, it is software, it needs to get deployed, needs to be measured and monitored. And I feel like we haven't quite found that, we haven't necessarily found a way to understand those trade-offs without building something, having something break, and essentially doing a sort of like ad hoc and like seeing like what happens. Um, we we can try to sort of do a matrix of understanding, but it, it's it's a little it's a little tricky. And I, I'd love to hear uh, Russell your your input on that. Yeah. So rather than specifically talking about um, one particular element, uh, I think there's generally a, a syndrome with all businesses, all companies that are innovative, in that there's a balance between innovation and technical debt. The faster and more aggressive you innovate the faster your technical debt will accrue and there's a balance to be had. Uh, and it's far more extreme for companies with uh, a large workforce. So if you've got a, a startup that's got five or 10 people, it's not likely to be too much of a problem with those. But if you've got a you know, multi-thousands or you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of workforce, it's going to just exponentially be huge. So setting up a... Um, a formal pipeline to manage the innovation and then deploy the innovation throughout the organization in a in a controlled practice manner to try and limit the technical debt is a real challenge. Uh, and as I say, for those large companies, far more so than the, than the small ones. Yeah, I, I would agree with that 100%. At the same time, you know, like in the field where I work, there's a, 
there's a lot of R&D kind of work. And then there's the also product building work, engineering work. And somewhere in the middle, it's like blending in, you know, and, and some, some of the procedures and, and processes, uh, they, they're structured from the engineering side and, and they might be like very restricted. And it sounds kind of silly, but, you know, like even like a, a naming rule, you know, baked into a GitOps kind of bot that kind of says, okay, I'm going to delete your repo because it's not named in accordance to the convention. And you understand why those, you know, bots exist, but you're like, this repo isn't something that's never going to become a product, you know, has nothing to do with the rest of it, but I need it there, right? It's kind of annoying to have to deal with this stuff uh, because they don't realize that that's like R&D stuff. That's just stuff that's kind of in development, but it's not, it's, it's not even close to being done. And, you know, when you turn it into a product, you're, you're going to follow all the rules, but in the meanwhile, it's just a nuisance. So, yeah, I, I think these things are really hard to define and, and you have to say, okay, when does something become something we have to monitor like that when, and formalize? Yeah, maybe yeah. I can. Just jump back in on that. I, I typed something in the chat there, Makiko. Um, so so uh, I think that's a it's a very valid point, Serge. And um, for the for those thing those items that are changing, whether they be uh, a fairly small, insignificant element in one corner of the organisation, or something that affects all levels and all stratas throughout the organisation, uh, if there's a formal change process and procedure in place that's followed uh, ardently, that helps um, de-risk. Um, misfires and, and uh, other issues with the implementation of changes in that, the, you know, the changes identified uh, and the deployment of the changes planned um, and considered and executed on a certain date. And you can then have some kind of a, a backup plan or a mitigation plan if something goes wrong with the implementation to immediately roll back to where you were before. Uh, and if it does go ahead, okay, you stamp that down and you have an audit history of all change that's happened from, you know, from day zero, if, if you've started so, so soon. Um, that helps, as I say, limit and de-risk issues with such changes. And probably more so for those that seem inconsequential or innocuous that people might argue about in, in little enclaves of the organization. You know, document it, uh, and then you can understand why it was changed that way and not just see, you know, to different sides of a large organization are arguing about a naming convention and, and seeing it flip-flop back between you know uh, over you know weeks or months um yeah so so change uh, is uh, or a, a formal change process i think is a is a big advantage yeah absolutely and i we have a question coming in on linkedin uh from santosh Pinchal saying you know he'd love to hear the latest on interpretability and explainability I think that's a pretty broad question. So what I actually want to do is I want to kind of tie that back into talking about value for data science projects, because I think, and I had this discussion with um, a junior engineer within our organization where uh, the question I was sort of asking them was, you know, the difference between observability of normal software products versus observability of machine learning models. Um, so when we talk about observability for traditional software products, a lot of times the question is, does it work and does it work as intended? 
and one of the biggest differences, right, between uh, software, traditional software products and machine learning or data science-based products is the fact that data science machine learning, a lot of it is based on non-determinism. It could be non-deterministic data. It could be even within the model itself. Uh, there could be some amount of randomization that is core to that model. Um, so essentially, my question to them was, was it enough that it works and it works as an, as an intended? Uh, but more importantly, when we deploy models, and let's say, for example, it works, it predicts, um, but it does it for different reasons between different sessions. Um, I would be kind of curious to hear sort of where does, in terms of interpretability and explainability, um, where does that sit in in both helping us understand the value of like a data science model, how it's like driving a product or a feature, um, you know, does it, how does it help, especially with thinking about adoption of data science and machine learning products through a company or an organization? Um, so I, I would love to get um, Serge your take on it. Uh, and, and Vin, if he's joining in, I see that he's part of it, uh, but would yeah. love to hear some thoughts to that. Well, I, I think a lot of the value is, is in de-risking. Um, there is value coming from understanding the model, of course, and, and maybe if you can present it to the stakeholder, the end user, like say, okay, this is, this is what the model predicts. And it's because of this, this, and this, that is value by itself, I think, but a lot of it has to be de-risking de and there's tools out there for, um, things like sensitivity analysis, error analysis, uncertainty analysis. Um, that help kind of form an understanding of the risk in addition to tools for uh, fair, fairness uh, mitigation and fairness also understanding of, of all the different things that happen with bias in the model. Um, and then robustness, that's another thing. Uh, you, there's adversarial robustness. Um, and so all these different out tools can be used to understand where there's potential failure with your models. Um, there's, of course, it doesn't cover everything. So the explainability tools might help you understand things that are only understood like on a case-by-case -case basis. Like you might find a subset that is misclassifying and you're like, this is very interesting. You know, it happens to happen with images that are like this or, you know, sounds that are like that. And you start to find these commonalities, but no toolkit will actually bring that information together. Uh, at least at first glance. So it it's um, like interpretation is one of those things. And you'll find this also in the realm of statistics of statistical analysis, that it it often takes a human, you know, it's it's not easily automated, it takes the human to actually take the visualizations and and draw the dots. Um, and so that's what I find fascinating. And I think, as a lot of MLOps tools will evolve, and especially the no-code ones, I think that will release a lot of brain power for people to focus on these elements. Because I, I find that a lot of the value data scientists can bring are in these, you know, I wouldn't say uncharted territories, but they're, they're at least not traveled enough. There's not enough discussion in, uh, you know, I found from, from data scientists in the area of error analysis and uncertainty estimation and so on. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, um, Vin, uh, before Kostab, 
Uh, I'd love to get your take too, because uh, a while back we had this, I don't want to call it the Zillow disaster, but we had a little bit of a Zillow disaster and uh, you had some really good, you know, pieces on it. And especially with regards to risk and data science projects and kind of making sure not only that you're getting the value, you know, value for your money out of the model, but also that you're protecting the corporate brand, you're protecting future initiatives. Um, you know, have you had experience of using interpretability explainability tools uh, in your, you know, projects with clients, or even what are some other methods you you found to help clients kind of de-risk their endeavors? First thing that a company has to do is create reliability requirements for everything. Every single project needs a reliability requirement set, and that's what's different about traditional software and data science and machine learning, because <clears throat> traditional software is just supposed to work. You know, here are your requirements. It will work and it will do these things. But if you look at something like Amazon Alexa, there's no way that you could put together a requirements document for Amazon Alexa because it works in a fair range of use cases. And then there's stuff that might work. I mean, ask it the question, why not? Who knows what will happen? And so that's, that's really what you have to do to define reliability is you have to say, here are the cases where it must work or we as a business cannot generate value from it. And if you look at Zillow, they actually did that. The C-suite said, look, we've got this really narrow window of profitability. And if our model is not you know, this accurate, we'll fail. And what was really weird is the data science team gave them a model with fairly good reliability requirements or re reliability you know, kind of parameters, gates, the street, and everybody in pretty much the data world said, look, your estimate's bad, like really bad. And so if you are going to do the same sort of work here, you know, to estimate home prices for buying as you did with Zestimate, that'll end badly. You'll have a bad time. I mean, they should have just sent the meme. And Zillow just bowled over everyone who said you would have to do something far more complex to do this right. And said, well, the market's going to rise no matter what. And if you look at what just happened with CNN Plus, same thing happened. People at McKinsey were of two minds. McKinsey on one side said, if you look at the data, you know, we can we can make a case to support 2 million users by the end of the year. But the more analytical, hardcore data science side was like, what are you talking about? I have not only like models, but also anecdotes of this failing horribly. Why would you do this? And again, they were overridden. And it's this, that's where, you know, it doesn't matter what framework you use. At the end of the day, this becomes a business decision. And if you don't have the awareness at the C-suite, at the senior leadership level to make a go, no-go decision when you're dealing with research, I mean, what do you, it doesn't matter how loudly any one you know, segment of the data science team yells, someone will fall in love with their model, will push it forward, will figure out a way to justify its reliability, and then it ends up in production and disaster happens. So, I mean, when, when it comes to what do I use to gauge reliability of a model, it isn't so much reliability as a body of evidence. I mean, I can explain the model all day. If it doesn't work, it doesn't matter how well I explain it. There's a completely different framework. It's not about observation because when you're talking about observing the model, you're already too late. If the model is failing and that's when you figure it out, that's not going to work. It isn't the model that you have to keep track of. It's the data in front of it. When you have to understand your model well enough, and that's where you come into some of these explainability frameworks 
and where you really decompose your model and decide, you know, how deep do I have to understand this thing in order to deploy it to production? How much confidence do I have to have in it? That's where it comes in is you understand what changes in the data, what changes, you know, could be macro factors like inflation's killing models right now. You understand what conditions could cause your model to begin to behave unpredictably. And that's what you're monitoring. That's really what you need observability into so that you are having failovers for your model. And when it begins to become apparent that your model is probably not going to be performing that well, it begins to fail over to some other sort of usually traditional software development, maybe even a legacy model that was just stable. You have something else that you fail over to until you can figure out how to retrain your model and get it back to the point where it meets reliability requirements. I love it. I love it. Yeah, that's a really, really good point with the, if it's, if you can't understand it, you push it to production anyway, then this is probably not a good place to be. Um, Costa. So, so the thing that, well, I mean, so I've been working for the last three or four years in basically highly regulated environments, right? So you're talking about defense and some medical applications of uh, AI, right? And the funny thing that you kind of have to grapple with is the notion of risk is not about how often am I right. It's also about weighing that up against how often is the prediction wrong and what is the uh, potential for and limitation of damage and, and risk essentially comes down to two things. It's not likelihood of being wrong, but also the damage caused when something is wrong, right? Now, this isn't new stuff. Like this isn't like new to the whole world. The idea of a risk analysis is, you know, we've been doing that for a couple, a couple hundred years, right? So essentially what I'm, sorry, I think I dropped off there for a second. Um, but basically the, the whole thing with the risk analysis is being able to trade off the, the damage done versus how likely that is to happen, right? And that's how we view the whole framing of business decisions in the first place. Even in a highly regulated environment tomorrow, if you go into an audit and you're in a like, you know, medical device audit and you're asked, hey, what happens when the model predicts something incorrectly? You're assessed on two essential fronts. You're assessed on what's the risk of patient harm and what's the risk of uh, eventual like secondary like adverse events happening from there, right? Um, that's the main thing. If it's if there's minimal patient harm, you're always already down to a lower risk category, right? If there's no risk to patient harm, there's already a lower risk category. Right? So it's really understanding and valuing that, which like we need to stop looking at this as as oh yes, there's this normal distribution and it must work for so much. What is work? You know, like what does it mean to actually work? We need to define those risk factors. What kind of risks are acceptable to a business? Let's take Zillow, for example. What's the risk of that prediction being wrong? Is it going to hyperinflate house prices for, I don't know anything about this market, by the way. So I'm talking random crap here, but what's the risk of it over predicting and then like hyperinflating the value of all the properties that they've listed there, right? What happens if that happens? Is that going to have an effect on the housing market in general? Um, what's the risk of that? So we need to be really conscious of those risks when we're actually designing our models, the way we're reporting them, and the way in which we implement them. Now, the downside of all of this is, let's say you're looking at a, at a medical scoring tool. Let's say you're looking at you know, uh, retinal images and they're trying to detect if someone's got glaucoma, right? Now, the way a lot of these things are tested, let's say a, a, a ophthalmologist comes in and diagnoses someone with a particular condition right? 
the way they're reviewed legally is amongst a journey, uh, amongst a group of similarly trained peers, is their decision unanimously uh, unrealistic? Would anybody else with the same training and the same level of experience have made the same, would have rationally seen themselves to be able to make the same decision? So if you can find three or four other ophthalmologists who would go, I'd look at that. And to be honest, yeah, I might've made the same decision then you can rationalize that the correct decision was made at the time, even if that wasn't the correct decision from a medical diagnosis perspective. Maybe there was something else going on that the doctors did not notice, right? Um, that's the kind of framing that they use both in the legal system as well as in the medical uh, in the medical world, right? At some level, that's the only way we can actually come up to this uh, bona fide trust of a model is if a trained professional is able to make the same kind of call and could rationally justify having made that same kind of call, right? Uh, otherwise, you end up sinking yourself into this trap where typically a human might only achieve 80%, you know, precision in a, in a particular task, but we're expecting models to have 99.9% .9 of the precision because without that understanding and framing of, of rational error and without contextualizing that into the risk of damage done by that error, there's no way of us to be able to find legal recourse to feel safe in saying, if something goes wrong, what's the likelihood of us getting through that legally? And it turns into this litigious madness where then companies are like, no, it's got to be 100% accurate before we will use it because essentially otherwise we'd get litigated against, right? So there's this interesting like, essentially this environment where we have to start understanding what is rational from a legal perspective as we're applying models into the real world in any context, whether that's housing market, whether that's medical, whether that's, uh, you know, whatever it is. Um, and it takes kind of a host of expertise to come up with that. And that's where I think a lot of companies may not have the right combination of statistical knowledge, model understanding, as well as legal understanding in their specific domain. Right. Having that right combination is probably what's going to essentially give companies confidence in, hey, we can trust the models that we deploy because these are the factors we look at when assessing a model, not just precision and recall. So you, you say legal and I'm just thinking like, ah, yes, nightmares of GDPR again and and data democratization and, and access and uh, oh, my God, why, why are we trusting people with data? Um, but yeah, I think I think those are all like fantastic, fantastic um, perspectives, because I think especially when it comes to the question of like, is the model working? Is this working the way we want it to? Is is the way we actually want it to work even the right way? Um, I feel like that's that's some wonderfully creative art of data science there. It's because to a certain extent, much like one person's diet versus another person's diet, some people want to eat cookies and some people can't eat cookies. I'm not going to tell someone they can't eat cookies. They got to decide for themselves. Um, but I think that's all fantastic stuff. We have a question from uh, Mark um, Lammy, right? Is that how yeah, you say that's it? yeah, that's it. You nailed it. Awesome, fantastic. And it, it sounds like you're working on a social okay, social media NLP project. Do you want to talk us through it and uh, pose the question that you're you're struggling with? Yes. So <clears throat> I so I, I was an Instagram user. Um, I stopped using Instagram. But before I've seen since the past three years that on big posts uh, from really big accounts you have in the comments, 
um, so many bots commenting random, random words, random sentences that don't really make sense. They often have um, photos of girls in bikini, porn actress, everything. And they always have one link in the bio, which leads you to a page, who leads you to a page who is like, you're going to have to pay for fake sexual content at one point. And it's always the same through all the bots. So I was always like, I get those same bots too. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, I don't know what they're doing. Two years. Yeah. And um, so I was always wondering why, I mean, Instagram doesn't ban them. Like, is there really a reason? And I was wondering, can I try to develop a model to make something to flag those users? So I collected a bunch of data. I have about 130,000 comments, which is roughly 80,000 users. Um, I already labeled 4,000 which is still a lot, but I have a lot to go. So I'm struggling on that part. Um, I found techniques to label more bots because bots are similar. So from one to another, they have the same description, the same photo, the same, um, the same format for many things where I can find bots, but I can't really like find more legit users. Does that make sense? So I'm, I'm kind of struggling on that uh, data labeling part. Awesome, cool. And just to reiterate, uh, is the struggle that is the struggle that it's time intensive, or that you're struggling to find more legitimate users of social media sites? No, it's just very, very long to do. Because I when I see, when I see the users, I I'm like half a second. I know if they're um, if they're bot or not a bot. Um, but it's just there's there's just too many because I collected a lot of them because it's a very imbalanced problem because there's way more legit users than bots. Um, so it just, it just really hard to label really long, sorry, to label everyone. Awesome. I'm going to let anyone jump in on this one. Um, the fun, fun question I thought that was interesting was why would a social media company be incentivized to not kick off more bots? I don't know. I think that's a fun one, but if anyone wants to jump in on the actual techniques for how we can help out Mark, please feel free to do so, uh, at this moment. I think I have a rationale, um, that, Sorry, I'm outside, stop it. And I think the model is really about engagement and advertising. And if the boss does not interrupt the engagement and their advertising budget, why should Insta block them? That's my rationale. Um, I could be wrong, but unless somebody flags it, that this is, you know, could, could land them in legal problems or whatever, you know, they're making money on it. What? So that, I, that, I, that's what I think is, is going on. They're making, they're still making money on them. Yep. Agreed. And I think from, so in terms of tackling the data labeling perspective, uh, all the much smarter data scientists on the call, which I know is most of you actually is much smarter than me. Uh, it seems like there could possibly be two options. One is to do upsampling, upsampling, downsampling. And another option is I, I I can't think of another option. So this is where people who are smarter than me feel free to suggest some, so some I, other I had, techniques. I had, I had a talk with Mark Freeman um, on I think it was this week or last week. Which actually recommended me to come here, um, and he, he was told he was telling me about uh, semi-supervised technique, which I never heard of before. But he just mentioned it like that, so I was just putting it up uh, as you just told me that. Very cool. And actually, uh, semi-supervision is a little bit different, right, from upsampling, downsampling. Um, would anyone here like to, to, to dive into semi-supervision or weak labeling? I can recommend a book on it. Uh, Giuseppe Bonacoso's uh, Mastering Machine Learning Algorithms in Python. It will go over your head very quickly, and it's almost biblical in size. So 
It's a book to own. It's a good book for us to have in our libraries for those super special cases, Nikki. Very, very cool. And it's good to see you, Tom. It's been a while, I guess for me. I don't remember when the long last time I was at the data science happy hour was. Um, okay, cool. Well, uh, if anyone on LinkedIn and, oh, Vin, yes, please. Look, I talk too much, so I try not to. Um, yeah, when you're dealing with bot detection, you already kind of figured out they all look the same and you're going to find the exact same messages. But the problem is that the message is different. Every, they'll iterate. And so they'll have different talking points and it almost sometimes follows news cycles with bots that are meant to amplify a particular message. They'll also follow advertising cycles and sometimes they'll follow like their contract cycle. Like you can tell some bots are on a one month contract, some are on a three month contract. And so when, so what you're actually doing is you're trying to figure out the cycle that each bot is on. Because no matter what you build, it'll only work for so long. The, the problem with bots is the drift is so fast on identifying them from content that they post. The real way to go at it is to network, to do a graph analysis, and to begin to understand why certain bots interact with the same content. And once you find content that gets amplified or message that's what you want the model to latch on to because as soon as you find you know this week's message and so that's what you want to label you don't want to label the accounts themselves you want to label the activity and then the connectivity between bots because what you're i'm not calling anyone out so no angry dms this time there are certain influencer accounts that use bots and reliably in their comments you'll always find bots, but they also hit the like button. They also hit the retweet or reshare or whatever. And so you can learn a lot from those aspects. And so when it comes to bot analysis, trying to analyze text is almost, that's the most painful way to go. And eventually your model's gonna break down because like I said, the cycles really are gonna blow you away. So do more of a network analysis. Once you find a small botnet, what you're going to realize is that they're all interconnected because there's like, I can't remember, there was an article that was written up a while ago that I'll try to find where they like called out there's a small number of bot farms on the planet. I guess it's kind of like crypto mining where it's all centralized now, but there's, you know, it gets really easy once you find a small cluster to map the rest of it from there. And so that's, like I said, that's where I would focus. Don't worry so much about the content as the activity. So once you find a small botnet, begin to analyze their activity. And that's the data that you want to mine is to follow those accounts and see what they do for how long with what main accounts, like legitimate accounts that they work with, because that's going to be your indicator of really identifying a bot's behavior versus what a bot says. That makes, that makes sense. That makes total sense. Maybe a little bit hard for me because I, I don't have the activity of those bots. I only have I only can see what they post and they're just the public data they, they share on Instagram. Um so that might be a little bit I, I'm not sure how to how to do that precisely uh on that on that example. Start with a manual analysis. This is one of those things where if you watch the behavior, you'll create a little bit of a heuristic on your own. 
and that's how I've seen a ton of different analyses start is you have to watch the bots mm -hmm. and you'll see the pattern of behavior that you first model. And so your first model is an expert system, you're hard coding, and it's really meant to gather your data set and to begin experimenting with what manual, like just expert systems type model starts to look sort of reliable. And you're not going to be able to predict anything very well, but your data set's going to get way better. And that's really where you're going right now, is you want the data gathering to be automated, but you have to first create the heuristics that do that for you. Because otherwise, you end up with so much noise because bots are only a small, even though there are a lot of them, they're only a small percentage of your data set. And you want to change that. You want to make it far more likely that you pick up bot behavior in all of your data sweeps. And so create that heuristic to start gathering data behind and then validate, obviously rigorously validate your heuristic before you, <laughs> before you dive in with the assumption that bots that aren't bots are, are bots and then destroy your model. But, but you really have to watch them. And I hate to say it, it's a, it's a manually intensive task because you're going to have to watch, create the heuristic. There'll be several iterations. You'll have to look at the actual data sets that you gather and trace back to figure out if they are bots. And this is a long-term thing. Like you'll be watching them for a week sometimes to figure out if this is a bot or just somebody that's acting like one or if your heuristics are just completely off. So it's, it's hard to do. And like I said, you're also going to be looking at likes, reshares, and commenting. And that's, it's really hard to gather like data, but you can do it by looking at uh, through their history. I think most social medias, you can actually pull history for a particular user account. And that'll typically include likes and interactions and engagement. So it's, it's not easy. You may have to do some scraping and I used to say scraping is evil, but we've had court rulings in the U.S. that now say it's okay. So go on ahead, scrape. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah. Very, awesome. very cool. And yeah. uh, I think uh, there's a couple relevant comments uh, and also Kostop has, has his hand up. So Kostop, if you have additional um, suggestions, please feel free to go ahead and uh, and talk about them. Uh, I just want to point out, Serge t uh, asked, uh, wouldn't outlier analysis be helpful in this case. Um, another idea that popped up. So if anyone knows Chip Huyen, uh, she used to be over at Snorkel AI. Their big thing is weak supervision. So that's an area to check out. Um, uh, and then uh, Costa, feel free to go ahead and add some additional suggestions. Yeah, Chip so is awesome. My, so to be honest, at the start of that question, I didn't know much about how to go about that, right? My main insight was that we got Mark Lummy and I've got a Lummy here. Yeah, pen, pen nerds, the fountain pen brand. But anyway, but based on what I was listening to from Vin, right, this is weirdly a lot like uh, pattern recognition in signal processing, right? You've got a radar signal that's got bucket loads of bounce back, right? And you've got different reflections from different objects from everywhere. And the way in which we visualize those signals rather than trying to, I, like, I mean, in this case, you can, it really comes down to how we represent information, right? As opposed to trying to represent information as here's a linear timeline of what this one individual account did, right? You're trying to identify patterns in the whole, in the whole mess, right? It's similar to how they look at uh, security information for, um, for banks and false transactions and things like that, right? So they're looking for patterns to match against. So if you can visualize the data of all activity kind of 
per account user over time, right? You're going to start noticing those little, essentially what Vin was describing is like feedback loops, right? Because you've got this bot that's fitting to this particular news cycle or this particular, particular set of words that are really popular right now, right? Or actions that are really popular right now. And as that trend moves on, they'll take a little bit longer to react. So that's the transition that you're trying to look for. And if you can overfeed the bots in some way, artificially prompt them to make those things, right? Like you, you see it all the time. If you've ever worked, like, have you ever seen a lot of those um, chat bots, right? If you spend enough time on one of those online chat bots things that you're just like, trying to test out, if you spend enough time with it, you can actually teach it to learn a cycle of, uh, of questioning that doesn't actually make sense. And you can detect that, right? So what we're doing is we're overfeeding this feedback loop, right? And you're making, you're making these bots learn into this feedback loop that's a slow rise time, but a super high oscillation time. If you're thinking about this as like a signal analysis, right? So it's oscillating like crazy. It's staying on the old topic. We've moved on. So it's correcting. And then it stays on that topic for a while, but we've already moved on again. So it's that transient like nature. It's always going to be a little bit behind, but just relevant enough, right? So if you're looking at this almost like a signal analysis kind of thing at like a mass scale, it might be more visible than if you're looking at it at a, hey, is this individual bot, like, is this individual account a bot? That might, like, you're, you, you end up looking for the trees and get lost in the forest in a sense, right? The scale of the data may tell you a different picture. Like, it's easy, like, it's the same analogy as you're looking for a line, so you look at texture differences, but then what's the difference between the edge of my face and, like, a wrinkle, right? Which line is relevant? That you're detecting for so that's different between like an edge detector and an object detector totally different scales of what they're looking at right um so yeah that was just my okay wow we can look at this problem in a completely different way um i'd be really curious if anyone's tried stuff like that i think that's similar to the output of graph analysis and that's similar to the kind of things they do in i believe the financial transaction world so maybe yeah maybe there's avenues there great thank you, thank you. i'll look into it Definitely. Very cool. And uh, so Tom Ives, uh, feel free to, to jump in. And then if anyone has questions, please feel free to put, oh, right. Uh, there was someone who posted a question about insurance. Uh, so we'll get to, we'll go to that question um, after Tom Ives. Also, please feel free to, you know, eyeball the LinkedIn chat. Uh, Hamza Tahir from, oh, ZenML. Hello there. Very fun project. Y'all should check it out. Um, he had some really good suggestions about ways that you could uh label so feel free to check that out tom ives let's go to you and for the person who asked about the insurance thing let me go hunt down your message and then we'll get to your question i just want to help those in the audience understand um the chiropractic data engineer is mark freeman and if you would like to understand this story more more fully all of you are welcome to join our LinkedIn Data Scientist Learning Guild on LinkedIn. Just send me a, a direct message in LinkedIn. And let me know you want to be part of it. Um, Vin, I, uh, okay, I'm Catholic. And so I'm going to use some Catholic words here. I don't worship you, but I venerate you. <laughs> That's funny, venerate. And uh, so I was really trying to listen closely, like, listen between your spoken lines. And I think what I heard you say was something pretty basic and important. I just wanna make sure. If we're considering doing semi-supervised learning, 
don't rush right to it. Still do a good job of unsupervised learning. Go ahead and do all the analysis you can there before you just dive into trying to train something semi. Is that is that what I heard you say? I think no matter what you do, you have to start with the data. But I think in this analysis in particular, the data gathering itself has to be done in such a way that you're curating a data set, sort of slanting your data gathering mechanism. And if you don't do that, you know, it's even more intensive, I would say, than most efforts because what you want to look for when it comes to bot analysis or anything, I mean, anomaly, any anomaly in general or any graph type behavior, ecosystem behavior, network behavior that's engaged in by a minority of the community or a minority of the graph, that's when you have to really curate your data set carefully because you have so many different communities that bot behavior um, it could overlap pretty easily. And so you can end up with a just a normal looking data set that destroys your model performance. Because like I said, you, you have so much community overlap when it comes to bot behavior. Some people naturally act like bots because, you know, they say half of everyone that you meet are below average intelligence. And that's especially true on social media. Just so you know, Vin, the angle I'm coming at for my question is more like general methodologies, not some specific case, because I'm always trying to figure out best practices. And uh, it, it seems like you're typically, if, you, if you're at a point where you're doing semi-supervised learning, it's just because the labels are kind of expensive to collect and you're wanting to do more. But typically in my mind, and I could be wrong on this, Unsupervised learning is when you're kind of trying to figure out the groupings classification-wise of these features so that you know what predictive analysis you might want to do. So I'm trying to just make sure I'm going, you know, we don't talk about semi-supervised learning very much. And I don't hear, as a, as a result, I don't hear best practices around that type of analysis very much. So that's why I wanted to, that's where my question's coming from. Anytime you do labeling, I think that's actually way harder than unsupervised. I, I think supervised and semi-supervised both are actually harder to do than a completely unsupervised, you know, doing what you're saying is essentially using the modeling process to create a hypothesis and then going down that rabbit hole and curating a data set based on what you think you found and then doing some sort of observational study. I think that's way easier than trying to do any sort of labeling at any sort of scale and then trying to reconcile multiple labelers. And then you introduce semi-supervised techniques on top of that. And it's just, I mean, I think that's one of the most ambitious and you know, large companies have the resources to do that. So when you talk about best practices, anytime you get into labeling, it's just this, it's a rat's nest because it's so hard to get just any labeling right. And then the, it, this line of questioning is coming from another conviction that I teach like all the time, like, hey, you know what? It just so happens that that 80% or more work we do in the uh, data pipeline before we get to predictive modeling really gives about 80% of the value back to the business if you treat it right. So I kind of hear you saying, again, well, don't rush off to any kind of learning just do a lot of data visualization because a lot of times that answers the most important questions anyway. It's really about asking the business what it wants. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and then you don't have to do machine learning to figure that out. You can do a lot of data exploration to figure that out. Yeah, okay, cool. We have an accord is Captain Jack Sparrow. Very, very cool. Um, what we'll do, so let's hop over actually to this question from uh, Krishanu. Um, I posted in the chat and I would love, I'm gonna call on people. I'm wielding my evil powers of, of doom. Uh, as the person that is doing the happy hour. Um, so we have a case study question, it sounds like. I would love to hear from Mark or the chiropractic data engineer, uh, Eric Santona. Uh, how would you go about solving this problem? So the problem is, as an insurance company, your goal is to reduce the number of calls from your customers because you need to maintain a high customer care workforce that adds to, okay, you need to save money, basically. Uh, for an insurance company, it's support calls. Your problem statement is, uh, wow, that's a lot of words. Okay, why non-drivable vehicles accrue more customer calls than drivable vehicles? Uh, you visually explore the distributions of both population and extract the mean. Okay, so basically if we were to sum it up, you have data, or Krishana, do you wanna uh, sum up the problem in like three sentences? Yes, uh, so basically, um an insurance company is uh, finding out that the vehicles that were non-drivable are their customers are calling on average two times more than the, the vehicles that were drivable. So you want to find out what are the, what is the, when you, when you found out the mean of both these populations, you, you found out like there were two extra calls that were coming from non-drivable vehicles as compared to drivable vehicles. So what is contributing to that difference? So what I did, uh, what I did uh, by starting out was I found out the top factors that were contributing for non-drivable vehicles, but I found out, but the factors that were contributing to the non-drivable vehicles uh, basically explained what are like, what are the top factors that are like contributing that are like adding to the calls. It does not still explain the difference between the two means, you know? Awesome, cool. So uh, all the people that I just named in the chat, um, how would you, uh, one, solve this case study uh, if you were doing it? Uh, number two, you're the hiring manager or the interviewer. Uh, what are you looking for from someone as they're solving this problem? So we'll start with, we'll start, we'll start with Mark. We'll go to Eric, Santona, and then Greg. Definitely. So uh, my first thought when seeing this is like, this is not an ML problem. I'm not trying to predict um, who who is going to call or stuff like that. So that removes off like a lot of things. So I'm, I'm going to like, this seems like a causal inference kind of problem. The second thing that I'm thinking is that, well, I don't control data collection. So this is going to be a secondary analysis. I'm doing observational methods. And so that means that I'm going to have to, you know, I, I have observed covariates, so um, possible reasons as to why, you know, call the outcome variables going up or down, right, or staying the same. But that means I have unobserved covariates, so things I didn't collect that I'm not accounting for. And so <clears throat> for me, this becomes more of a statistical problem and thinking about your populations. And so I'm hearing mean, but I feel like mean is not really a effective use because it can, like, is it median? Is it, <laughs> is it? mode like there's there's uh um you didn't say average you said mean so never mind take that take that back so you said mean right but you don't know the underlying distribution and so from there i would look at the underlying distribution for the outcome variable which is um 
call numbers among your two different populations, right? Um, and I would just try to understand first, you know, what type of distribution um, do I have? Like, is it a normal distribution, which I highly doubt. Um, but then that'll determine kind of like what assumptions you have to use moving forward from there. And then, um, <clears throat> then you need to ask, like, for me thinking about, you know, am I missing data? Um, you know, if, if it's missing, you know, why is it missing? Is it missing at random? Or is there a reason why it's missing, right? Because then that'll tell me like, how do I handle certain things? And so, as you see, I'm like going through different levers of like understanding my population. And then from there, I would I would move towards like uh, some forms of hypothesis testing. So, you know, your outcome variable is, you know, number of calls, right? And so <clears throat> the first the first thing is just how can you make these two populations similar? And then what's your intervention? So, and then I've come from a healthcare background, so that's why I use intervention, but like what's your treatment or control? Um, and so that's, uh, that's going to be the uh, what should we call it? What what status they are for? Um, what status they are for like non non moving and moving vehicle? There's a long a long list. Um, and then from there you can see kind of like what are the driving factors? So um, whether it be like regression or whatever thing you may do with that um, t test. And that's how I start. And again, really try to start simple make sure you understand your two populations and then engage kind of like foundational uh, statistics for that. And then there's more kind of advanced things you can think of, like, for example, like multi-level modeling. So maybe, you know, you have these two populations, but like there's a subset where it's like maybe by zip code or by state, there's like some factor that's just being hidden by combining them all together. Um, so those are some other things you got to really look for. Um, does that answer your question? And then I know there's another question. I think let's uh, let's actually hop over to because Santona and Eric uh, are asking some clarifying questions in the chat. Um, so either Santona or Eric, do you want to um, hop on? And especially, I think both of you have gone through interviews. You've been on the candidate side, but you've also been, I believe, on the interviewing and the hiring side. Um, so, what are some questions that you've also asked in the chat? But what are some what's some additional information you would need? to feel confident solving the problem or the case study. Um, we'll start with, uh, let's start with Santona, then we'll go to Eric. Yeah, Eric, the nose goes slow. Um, yeah, I will answer this question by answering the, the second part of the question, which is like, uh, what I'm looking for is a bunch of clarifying questions. Um, and the question is, so is, was this an interview question for that you came across or? Um, uh, no, this is not an interview question. Okay. Um, yeah, so I don't, I don't understand the question. So first of all, what is a non-drivable vehicle? Okay, a, a vehicle that has shut down, uh, maybe the engine is off or something. Now it's not, not in a driving state. So it needs to be towed. So it's, it's basically non-drivable. And drivable is like, it's still driving. It's just damaged from some, some parts are damaged, but it's still driving. Ah, I see, so it's not a prior, prior uh, labeling that you have, it's at the time of the call, you get this piece of information is that this is the... Yes, yes. And then um, when your uh, analysis of that data, you're finding that on average, the uh, most more calls have to do with a non-drivable vehicle than a driver. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, what do we want to get? Like, what's what's the question? What do we want to get from this? We want to reduce the, basically we want to reduce the number of calls 
and we want to exactly find out why are those extra like why on average we get more calls from non-drivable vehicles so that uh, by looking at the factors maybe we can uh, make some adjustments and reduce the number of calls once we know the factors that are impacting that are causing those calls maybe we can uh, use them to our advantage i hope you got it yeah, I, th I think you're answering your question a little bit, uh, which is to say there are lots of other factors that, uh, you know, we'd have to explore in the data before we could uh, formulate a good answer. I mean, I like Mark's approach, with, which is like, this is like general steps that I would take with, with this uh, problem. But uh, really, to me, it's, uh, I mean, now I know what the, what the goal is, which is reducing the number of calls or, or claims. And I also know that this, um, labeling of the data non-drivable versus drivable is just another you know uh, piece of information i'm getting in that call uh, and then so after that um, collision happens or accident happens you know i'm going to get a bunch more information around the you know what was involved in the collision like uh, what cars were involved you know who was at fault versus not so all of that and all of that information is going to be relevant to answering that question so i i am skeptical that we can get to the bottom of how do we reduce number of total incoming calls by using this particular piece of information around drivable versus non-drivable. So I know I know that this isn't about this particular problem uh, to solve, but uh, I think like generally the approach is like um, if I was interviewing someone, I'd probably not ask that specific question. But putting that aside, if I did happen to ask that question, what I would want to see is you know, defining what the what the goals are, defining what the data are that are available, and then uh, you know taking that approach based on that. So no formula, a priori. Very cool. And Eric uh, would love your insights as well. Sure. So um, Sandra, kind of building on top of what you just said, it kind of would be kind of an interesting question to ask in an interview because, like, it like totally doesn't have like a good like straightforward answer where it's like, well. If you just start spouting off some some like really detailed, heavily assumed plan, then maybe that's not wasn't really the point. Maybe it was like, well, actually, I was hoping that you would ask me like, what the heck is a non-drivable vehicle? It's like totally a not not like not a term we usually use. Um, I agree, it would be a tough interview question, but I guess it depends on what you're trying to get out of the interviewee. Um, one of the thoughts, the questions that came to mind for me was. I don't know if reducing, I'd want to understand where the goal of reducing the number of calls came from, because, because it could be that people who have non-drivable vehicles were in horrific accidents compared to people who got fender benders. And yeah, you just like call your insurance one time compared to the person who got hauled off to the hospital and is calling you because they're dealing with all sorts of problems. And in that case, it's like totally normal that they're going to call you, um, perhaps even twice. Uh, and so, and so I would want to understand why those people are calling multiple times. And it could be that you could reduce the number of calls by recognizing like, oh, maybe we should put in some sort of a service related to, you know, text me from your hospital bed or something like that. I don't know um, if that ends up being one of the causes, but <clears throat> knowing that. And then the other, another angle that I was taking it from instead of like severity of accidents was I would want to understand maybe there are subpopulations within like the multiple calls group because there could be like multiple calls 
people who got in horrible accidents and have to call about a bunch of things. Or there could be multiple calls, people who drive way nicer cars than I will ever drive, who are just like calling about their baby, like because there's like something that, you know, that they, they want to get some claim or something taken care of um, because it got damaged or something like that. And in which case, that would be a very different group um, and would, re- would could potentially be treated differently and you could see like oh well the value of this person's car is way different so we could we could potentially treat them differently or offer them some different sort of i don't know something to help them um yes press one if you're dying two if your condition is stable and then two just like hangs up on them because we can't afford to take another call um anyway those are kind of a couple a couple of thoughts that came to mind is is number of calls really like the target metric or do we want to look at something that's going to tie to revenue or the reason behind the calls or something like that. That that was very funny and also very sad because I think some of that actually does happen, but um, just brushing that aside. Uh, but, you know, so Greg, like you've worked with a bunch of data scientists, you've, um, um, you have data, you've had data scientists, data science initiatives under your belt. Um, if you got a problem like this or a question like this from the business side, um, how would you sort of approach it or how would you want your data scientists to approach it? What would you look for? And also how would a question or project like this end up becoming like a feature or a product over at Amazon or even a, a report? Would love to get your love to get your insights on that. Yeah. Um, so I, I can't I can't speak much for uh, the, the, the the company I work for, but um, when, when I hear cases like that, uh, my, I guess my product management senses are tingling um, in the sense of, you know, I want to ask way more questions uh, than what's presented. Um, and I think you guys, um, Santona and, 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 and Eric, uh, you guys, you guys uh, dive into this very well. And then, you know, uh, uh, Mark gave a, a great approach in terms of how to dissect the data. Um, I think the key information for me is what are we trying to accomplish of course, as you guys said, um, and what what are we expecting as an as an um, um, outcome um, versus output, right? So an outcome um, really speaks to me, in my opinion, highly uh, to uh, what the business is expecting, uh, because that's what you tie with, um, I guess, a business goal. Now, a key thing for me when I hear that is when I hear this use case, I, I would wonder, you know. Exactly what Eric said. Why um, are we thinking? What led to the notion of n- understanding why a certain group creates more calls uh, becomes the goal? Like, what are we trying to accomplish there? Uh, the way I would look at this is, you know, maybe there may be some some data dissecting that needs to happen, in the sense of, you know, why in the first place, you know, a certain group of people are calling more than the other group. And then, you know, kind of like understand this demographic, um, understand, you know, uh, uh, if there's something different uh, with re- re- regards to their lifestyle or the kind of car they're driving, et cetera, et cetera. But most importantly is, isn't it expected though? Like when somebody has a non-drivable car that they should call more than someone with a drivable car? That should be like, it should be a, a common concept, right? It, 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 this doesn't need any A-B testing. Right. That, you know, of course, if you have an undrivable car, you should uh, call more um, and then and then go from there. Right. So now when we ask all these questions um, and answer it through exploratory data analysis, 
then we go through, okay, what can we kind of maybe uh, uh, do in terms of better control of our budget? This is where I think it's a little bit more uh, useful there. So we have a budget. Um, how can we leverage this data to predict where we're going to fall in that budget? Knowing that we don't have full control of when a car is going to break down, right? Unless you tell me we have full control of when a car breaks down or not, then, you know, uh, uh, um, I don't see why we should, you know, leverage who calls more than who calls less, you know, over, you know, that. So if we know that we don't have control over when a car breaks down, we can, however, use this data, understand the demographic to kind of predict when we're going to have a high season of calls, et cetera, et cetera, so we can better adjust our budgets. So I think, you know, from a business perspective, what they don't like is um, uh, unprepared, you know, outcomes or unexpected outcomes. But when they have tools and methodologies to better prevent when things are moving inside of a budget, I think that makes it a, bit, a better, a more powerful thing. So what I would partner with the data scientists in is to kind of like uh, segment those callers, understanding their lifestyle, understanding what you know causes these calls, um, and then kind of like create some models that better predicts uh, when we're going to have a high uh, 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 call season or whatever, and then kind of better uh, place uh, the uh, uh, you know customer workforce to accommodate that. Uh, and this way, I can kind of see where the budget is moving. I can better uh, uh, predict whether I'm going to hit budget or go over budget over time, et cetera, et cetera, and have a better conversation with the business in terms of, you know, what would be the expenses and things like that. Um, and then long term is to figure out, you know, what can we do as an insurance company to prevent these accidents from happening in the first place, right? Are we seeing younger crowds? Uh, calling, you know, because they don't have a lot of experience. So how, what can I do as an insurance company to prevent that, right? So this is the long-term thinking to kind of minimize that impact and overall get that, you know, saving on the budget long-term. So we'll go to uh, Mark, but uh, see, this is why I want to be Greg when I grow up, because the point of the, wouldn't we expect more calls from people whose cars are, are broken down and janky? It's like, yeah, actually we would, we would. It's like, practicality right there um but yeah we'll, we'll, we'll go to mark and we will so uh i'll keep the chat open for another 10-15 minutes if anyone has additional questions please do otherwise then we'll we'll shut it down while i wait for my better half to come back from the watch fair where he's been all day mark please go i actually ahead. have a question too if, there, if there's room afterwards too um but uh, you're about to say something i'm Can sorry I, I was gonna say oh he's not at the fountain Pen flea market, you know. Sorry, I, I I can peg. Okay, you know. Obviously, this is recorded, and and he never watched any of my calls. So uh, I can ties, fountain pens, watches, and James Bond movies. So that's if one of those four He's is in town. There there is there is a persona there, uh, but I'm sure he'll come back with like two or three watches. Um, but yeah, go go ahead, Mark, and, and we'll we'll take the the question you have to afterwards. Um, so one, one thing I completely agree about asking the, the more clarifying questions. Um, I would argue, though, that I feel like the question how it was set up, the unknown space around it was so wide that I felt like I wouldn't know how to ask the right questions. If that makes sense. That's why I really emphasize like understanding underlying distributions, because they didn't say like, hey, like we believe this factor is causing X, Y, Z and we want to explore it more. It was just like we have two populations, something different. 
what's what's driving that, right? So that's a very open question. Um, and so I feel like you can ask more targeted questions if you do that exploratory analysis and do some quick hypothesis testing initially. Again, not saying that XYZ causes it, but to give you some more signals of like what's even worthwhile to start asking. Because when I mean, you go business stakeholders, um, it's hard to like <laughs> imagine this level of data. It's very complex. And so we work with this data all day. And so it's us, it's easier for us to navigate. But I think, you know, for someone who's not very used to the data, um, you know, you can get some wrong kind of leads and go down the wrong path. And I feel like adding structure by doing that underlying kind of exploratory analysis first, again, don't spend hours and hours doing it, really time box it, can help you create some more targeted questions. And I would, I would actually push back on the assumption like, hey, cars, the car, non-operative cars, of course, they're like more, um, they're more likely to like have more calls. Um, for me, I feel like whenever I use like logic <laughs> and not look at underlying data, that's when you kind of get messed up. And this happened to me over and over again in healthcare. Um, and I think another thing to really consider, especially for insurance is like, it may be more obvious, but like, what about that population that they can better, better kind of configure for the policy plans to really optimize it? Cause they're, they're basically like <laughs> trying to minimize how much money they can give away. Right. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting kind of uh, problem space with way too much possibility. And I think looking at data really um, makes it more manageable to ask more targeted questions. Don't forget to ask the business folks, what are the motivations to, what motivates them? That's like, what, what, are the, what are they trying to get, right? What, what, what brings, you know, victory to their pockets, right? Once you figure that out, you know, you'll, better be, you, you'll be better placed to come up with a solution that works for everyone. So that's the super important stuff because they can, they can be there to block everything, any solution you come up with until it really speaks to what they, they're here for. And then also, you know, you, you, can, you can get higher into the bureaucracy of things, right? So a VP may be motivated by how long he or she thinks he will be in that position, for example. If you're bringing up a solution that will see the fruits in five years, that VP may be like, eh, I don't know, I don't know about that because you know they're thinking they might be leaving in the, the next two right they want that victory quick and your solution is taking too long so you have to be uh, worried about that you have to think about that too yeah just just to add on to that um data is, is everything right you can't begin to answer that question or most of the questions that we we work with uh, are on without looking at the data under uh, or studying the distributions and so on and so forth um but but the point of asking the questions up front is so taking this specific example right i'm already being told that this drivable versus non-drivable nature of cars has something to do with my uh you know my profitability as, a, as an insurance company that is so many assumptions and someone or some set of people has gone through and made those set of uh, assumptions and then built this question around it and my uh, my approach would be to start, you know, identifying those assumptions and then validating them before trying to answer that question at all, because I, I don't, you know, necessarily think that that's the right question to ask. Love these case study type problems. I love them. I love them. Um, cool. Well, I, I hope that was helpful for you, Krishani, on that particular question, but also the methodology and kind of approach that you'd use for, for future problems. I know that was super helpful for me. I always love these ones, um, but cool. So uh, let's go to Mr. Chiropractic Data Engineer. It's funny, I saw that and I was like, wait, I didn't let this person in. <laughs> so 
No, I mean, Sneaky. I would, I would, but I was like, I just, I didn't remember seeing that name. Um, but yeah, feel free to pop your question. Um, so my, my question hopefully doesn't turn to a long conversation. I think it's relatively straightforward. Um, I'm doing reviews with my manager. I got some really great feedback, um, of like just how I can kind of improve in my, in my career. So I was, I was promoted to senior data scientist and we're currently hiring for a staff data scientist. And the question that I asked was, you know, what, what are you hiring for the staff data scientist that I'm not filling? Right. And that's not like in a negative way. It's just like, I, there's obviously a gap in my skill set that I'm really curious about. And my manager probably really great feedback is that, um, shout out to Vince class. I always point this out every, I feel like every call I do this, but <laughs> that strategy class really got me to understand like the business case. I'm able to identify business problems, pitch them, get buy-in really easily now. And so my manager committed me on that. But now I have this problem where I struggle to break down this, like I have the solution, I have the business problem, I know how to like how to solve it. Breaking it down to individual projects are extremely difficult to me. And I don't know how to break that down, what process I have. And my manager saying, you know, at a staff data science level. I'll be able to note that opportunity, which I'm doing, but then be able to say like, these are the series of projects you need to do to get that solution. And this is how you would delegate it. Um, and I think a great way for to, to highlight this is like, I've, I've, I've delivered on these projects where I said like, hey, like this, uh, we're gonna do this. And I do these long-term projects and then I have a PR that's like thousands of lines uh, of code or whatever it is. And I have to break up the PR to different things before they get code review. And for me, that's like, oh, wow, that could have been individual projects that could have got a lot more little wins along the way instead of like this long, long kind of process and getting a big win at the end. So at the core of it, my question is, you see the opportunity, you see a project, it's a very large project. How do you go about breaking that down to smaller components and building momentum from there? I mean, this is a clarifying question. Good group to ask. Go ahead, Eric. How big, how big is a very large project? Like the Olympics say, is a really big project. You know, yeah, like let's months say long, six months. Year. Go back on you now. And that's big for, for a startup. Keep in mind, I'm in a startup. So six months for a startup is like five years. Narky, but very real answer. Hire a product manager. Hey, Greg. <laughs> hey, hey. Hey, this is perfect. Because Greg has his hand up. And he had PM background. So so one thing, one thing I can tell you here, Mark, I, I don't think it's... Uh, you not knowing what to do. It's it, it's probably more people relationship than anything else, the way I look at it. Um, when you think about like, you have an idea, you picture what the end, um, the outcome would be. Um, you, you picture the end in mind, you work backwards through one thing, which is the execution plan. So to me, an execution plan explores everything you need in terms of dependency that will allow you to get to that outcome, right? To that end, end, end game. And once you have an execution plan, the only thing that's missing there is alignment, right? Because sometimes this execution plan will involve, you know, many projects that fall beyond your control that other teams have to do. If they don't do it, there's a dependency uh, on continuing, you know, the overall six months uh, project. So once you have that execution plan, start socializing it to key people. And those people are the ones who will help you fine tune it because you're not going to catch everything. It's going to be impossible. The bigger the project, the more impossible it is for you to come up with every single line item to focus on. And then once you have that execution plan aligned, make sure during the alignment that we understand, you know, what's prioritized. 
because some of those sub projects may not be fully uh, deployed as you would like. So have these groups responsible for deploying their key sub project, uh, prioritize what, how do you wanna launch it and understand what the uh, uh, dependencies are. Because if you miss out on a dependency that will further push your ETA, right? So really what you want there is again, execution plan, alignment and prioritization. And it's more about people relationship than anything else. There's nothing else you're missing really. So uh, maybe your opportunity is to, you know, beef up your networking, beef up your, you know, uh, the people you call, you know, colleagues that can give you a push, give you, uh, you know, really be champions of your work and then uh, get it moving once you align with, you know, the, the, the big dogs, right? So the VPs, et cetera, et cetera. And you should be good to go. Very cool. Um, Eric, do you want to hop in there? And also we, I will welcome input from lots of people actually. Eric, and then and then we'll go to uh, Navi. I think, I think Navi had her hand up first. She can go first. I think um, that was a small, short question for you, Mark. But, um, so whenever I'm in these projects that go anywhere between six months, nine months, two year, years sometimes, it's very important to know what your deadline is. And that whoever the top guy is needs to let you know what that deadline is. And everybody below him should align to that deadline. That's like number one. Um, B, you want to have a RACI. And that stands for R-A-C-I, which is Responsible, Accountable, Communicator, Informed. You should look it up. It's like a big uh, concept in how you manage large or long-term projects. And it's important that you define who those RACIs are in that project for you to be successful in that and then have many deadlines working towards that deadline. So that's kind of, so RACI is kind of like a long topic, but for any long projects, you, you wanna have people who are responsible for doing it, people who are accountable for doing it, who's going to communicate on that project and who's going to be informed on that project. And if you take almost any of your data science, analytics, any project, from that point of view, you're bound to be successful. Um, and that's something I do it mostly for my long-term projects, especially my you know, marketing mix work. So I had a question. Um, so when so with the so the staff position, break being able to break those things down, is the expectation then that you are the one who's like managing all of those smaller pieces or doing all of those smaller pieces, or what's the kind of balance there? Definitely. So I, I, I wouldn't focus necessarily being like a staff person. I was just, I was just like, I was using that as like kind of like a differentiator, just get better, more context okay. on my manager. But, mm -hmm. you know, the expectation is like, my manager is basically trying to groom me to be like a technical leader within, uh, within the company and being yeah. able to see these strategic opportunities uh, as a technical leader. And like, how can we shift our architecture or like product choices from a technology standpoint, and then build out those capabilities over the long run. And so creating those various projects and being able to either implement some of them, but also be able to give concrete things for um, people who aren't like kind of junior level, be like, this is what you need to do to like move this, this kind of long-term project over. So I'm not managing people, yeah. but I'm managing like the process and making sure like this end result happens kind of similar to what Navi said. So is that, so it's interesting. I'm, I'm really glad you asked about this because kind of certain aspects of this are kind of something that I deal with like on a semi-frequent basis. 
maybe a little smaller, um, but things that things that are way bigger than anything that I can get taken care of and also way beyond the analytics organization. And so it's great because I get to talk with lots of people all over the place um, in teams that I'm not even quite sure what all they do, but somehow they all plug together to make work work function. Um, but uh, I was kind of, so I was, I was wondering about it because I guess you, you, I, like you said, so you're kind of the, is that what a data product manager is? Because I've been thinking about like Eric Weber, Eric Weber talks about data, data product man. Is that kind of the same type of thing where you're being able to say like, this is the thing that needs to happen and here are all the different technical pieces or is that something different? If I can hop in there. Okay, go ahead. If I can hop in. Well, so Mark, from your question, right, you're kind of talking about, there's potentially like two components we can look at, right? There is the component of, no matter kind of like what your skill set, what happens when you're given like a big, big project, regardless of whether or not you're senior or junior or staff, that is is like big relative to you, right? But then would, there's also the argue, like career progression aspect. Can I which clarify something real quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that the strategic component is that I'm not given these tasks. I'm like seeing these opportunities. I'm seeing a gap within our business and an opportunity within the market. And I make okay. a case. And so I'm developing the solution. I'm developing the problem statement. Okay. And so I called out Vince because like, I didn't see this stuff before. Now I see it everywhere. And I, I, I see these opportunities. So like most of my projects for the past year, I've come up my, with myself. Okay. Um, I, I don't get projects really given to me anymore because I just yeah. keep on coming with these big, big projects. And now it's like, all right, how do I manage this? It's like going beyond me, the kind of scope and impact I'm having, which is great. But um, my manager is really trying to set me up to like be really effective at the next level. Gotcha. And to just sort of... So also, I don't have deadlines either because I, I came up with it. So they're like, what do you think it is? <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. And so just to kind of sort of resummarize, um, this, the struggle or the challenge is breaking down the, the projects into yeah, consumable so, pieces that you can deliver on. Definitely. So like okay. I, can, I can have the idea, I can see the whole thing and I can build it end to end. But now it's getting to a point where like I'm a bottleneck and I need to be able to break this down because if I can get a smaller win, I can get quicker buy-in, get more people involved. Or if I can give it to some of my colleagues because it's now starting to push a strategic initiative now because uh, leadership season now. Yeah, you, and which is why you want you want uh, alignment at the top. Um, and, you know, alignment includes what Navi was saying, having a race that they all align on. Um, and also, even before you go to individual teams alignment, you want to already socialize it with, the VPs who take decisions because you want to show how does this big project tie into their overall mission and goal, right? Because if there's no alignment there, you're not going to have champions who will push for you, right? It takes one quick email from a VP to make the subgroups, uh, you know, responsible uh, project owners to agree to align with you, whether they like you or not, right? You have their VPs in your, in your uh, court, on your court, then you know you you should be good to go. Um, then Eric, you were talking about data product management. Um, to me, I, I make no difference between like a product manager is a product manager, right? Whether it's a data or something. When you think about data product, it's the same thing as any product, but it's the way you're doing it that's that may be different, right? To me, a product. Um, I guess, creates value for its users or customers, right? By creating value, it means you're tackling some sort of pain point they're having 
And when they use this product, the, the, solution, the solution eliminates the problem, right? And uh, the data product is the same thing. So as a data product manager, you're here to kind of like uh, think about the strategy behind uh, that data product or that portfolio of data product. Um, and, and, and it all starts with understanding who our users are. Um, and based on your users, you know, you're able to kind of like not only collect what pain they're having, but also anticipate what future needs they will have and understand, you know, what to do, what kind of like team uh, uh, do you have who can help them, you know, address those, those pain points. And now comes the different methods, the different techniques when it comes to prioritizing, right? So you can't solve it all at the same time. So to prioritize, you have to come up with certain frameworks, right? Some framework may be, okay, how much effort does it take for you to release a set of features for your data products? Or it could be how aligned are you with the overall business objective, right? When you release feature A, Y, A, X, Y, Z, whatever. Uh, and also, does that feature really solve a problem for your customers? So, um, you know, I can think of different data products. Like, for example, when I released um, dashboards for sales folks, when I was prior to uh, 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 where I work now, um, I considered those data products because before, you know, sales folks, they ran left and right to get information. Now you come to my dashboard, you know what prices are, what the future expected prices based on currency exchange rates uh, for 49 different countries. You can kind of like create quick quotes so fast and things like that. I call it a data product because now my sales team who are my customers now could tell me, hey, um, I can do X, Y, Z with this product, but I still miss something. So I kind of take their feedback to prioritize my features and kind of understand the trends of what they've been asking me to kind of like um, uh, create a roadmap for the next three to three years uh, to, to make to continuously make this product better. So you can there's no difference, right? Whether you hear data product or, or something else, a product is a product and uh, you need people, you need more than one person to, 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 to manage it and dream for it. I think something I want to add there because um, I've seen, <clears throat> I have friends both in the company I work at, but also at other companies that, the people I know at other companies um, where, so they, they've recently been, moved into technical leadership roles. And one thing I will say is that something that they had to navigate, because I remember one of them saying that exact phrase, which is like, I'm becoming the bottleneck. And I think a change they had to make in their mental framework was that of an individual contributor versus a leader. Um, and I think the big difference is as a leader, it's okay for you not to be hands-on. And that is where the alignment comes in, because if you need to request headcount, if you need to even get a dotted line, like borrow someone from another team, that's where that alignment comes in and being able to sell that value. And, and we've done that like on our team, my managers had that conversation with other managers, right? Where we need to get projects through or like, there's two ways that comes about. One way is we had to rebalance our portfolio of projects and we had to rebalance it away from operational service oriented stuff to more architecture builds. And it's really hard to do both. Um, it's like trying to lose weight and build muscle at the same time. It's really hard to do both um, for most people. Yeah, it is. 
but it's the same thing with balancing that portfolio of projects. So for us to ask, we need more architecture building time or infrastructure building time. We do have to let go of service on call time. And they had to have that conversation, but that conversation had to be around, you'll get more value out of the architecture building. But we've also had to have other conversations, um, once again, at the manager level, but also at the staff uh, engineer level where they've had to borrow people from other teams for expertise. Um, and once again, that comes back down to, can you make the strong enough argument? And so I, I see some people that I know who have made that transition where that's one of the struggles is they kind of feel like they're, they sort of have to do it all on their own when, because they're being moved into technical leadership, part of, part of the reason they were moved into it, which they may or may not directly realize is because they were able to wield influence to get collaborators on stuff. And a lot of times they did that just because they're cool people to work with, but it's not always explicitly brought up that that was the reason why they were promoted. And then so when they get promoted, they're still working in IC mentality. And then they stop asking people for help, which is exactly the thing that like got them promoted. So I think, yeah, like what Greg was saying definitely kind of resonates with at least what I've seen from people that I know recently who've made that move to technical leadership. Um, and part of that does also mean kind of like figuring out how to get unstuck on scoping and getting around paralysis analysis. And that's another thing that we've run into where we have projects that are really kind of very big for any individual on the team to take. And so we've had to kind of get together as a team or whoever we can kind of pull from other teams to literally even just mirror board stuff out. Like, what do we think are the next steps? What do we think are tickets? We bring in like technical leaders from other teams, go tear this up, give us all the bad stuff, like give us the feedback and it's mess. It's a messy process because we're just sticking post-it notes on a mirror board where we're like, Oh, we think we have to like migrate this thing. And like, we think we have to talk to the like sales engineers and we think we have to get like it access and da 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 da. And you just see a bunch of randomly colored post-its, but that's how we've also like had to handle it sometimes because um, I feel like there's a lot of like methodologies out there for how to like refine tickets. But I also feel like it's theory a lot of times. And it still comes down to like putting post-its on mirror boards. What's, but at least that's really, what Oh, good. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, what's interesting is that I feel like I have the actually like same kind of problem, but on the opposite end of the coin, like it's not actually not analysis paralysis, but I see an opportunity and the way I get buying because we move so quick in a startup is that I build an MVP within like a week or, or less. And I just show them like, this is what's possible if you give me time. And they're like, whoa, you can do that? I'm like, yeah, I can. And then they're like, okay, then do it. And I'm like, okay. And then I realized actually this is a six month project and now I'm stuck on this. <laughs> and so I get the buy-in really quick and I move really fast, but then actually you plan it out. And I'm like, oh wow, I'm kind of in over my head, but I keep on delivering being in over my head. See what some of us call that is, is on the road to burnout, but um, <laughs> because it sounds like those are some internal barriers and challenges uh, and obstacles the whole what got you here won't get you there kind of thing. But Kostov has his hand raised, so feel free to jump in there. I'm just chilling until my, my boo gets back from the watch fair. So. So, ba so basically one of the things that that struck a very interesting chord with me, right? It's very easy to be very honest, very easy to get buy-in from the top, right? Like that's not the toughest challenge. If you show them some promising small statistics on, hey, this is going to make you bucket loads of money or save you bucket loads of money. Yeah, it's not hard to make that side of the business case, right? It's not hard to find impetus and motivation there. 
who you've really got to convince is, especially at a large organization, right, <clears throat> is all of the, the seniors and architect kind of level people that are going to be in charge of delivering a lot of the subsystems. Like if you need significant infrastructure help, you're going to need to get buy-in from the infrastructure team to make sure that it's actually rational and doable within a span of time, right? Um, so I would almost say if you've got a week and you've built out something to prove something in a week, maybe take a week and a day, take literally a day to try and figure out, okay, if I do pitch this, how quickly do I need an answer for here's the plan on how we're going to execute? Can you think ahead of what the C-suite team is going to tell you? They're going to want the plan right now, right? They're going to see, oh, that's great. Can we do it? When can we do it? Let's get it done now. That's when if you already have, hey, here's a plan I prepared earlier, right? These are the unknowns. You could potentially just go out and start talking to all the senior managers out there and just start getting a bit of buy-in from the team and start getting a bit of a reality check. Your info team's going to tell you, hey, mate, that's crazy. It's going to take us two months just to get the info in. And then, you know, that's when you start getting these, at least the large pieces of the puzzle, the large epics going. And you go, okay, there's going to be some dependencies in here. And then you build in some buffer time. So when you go and present, you say, hey, guys, I did this initial experiment and it looks promising. I reckon we can do this. It's not going to be a next week kind of thing. To do this properly at scale, we might need to scale this out. So there are some risks there. Here's what I reckon is going to you know, be the projected timeline. Now, that is often so finger in the air kind of measurement because you're going to find things are totally different when you hit the ground. But uh, yeah, it's just trying to kind of project that out. And the more times you do that kind of pitch, if you try to do a bit of that preparation ahead, it's often really helpful, I guess. So, yeah. I just want to know, I, I, think that was the key. <laughs> I think that's the key piece I was missing that connected the dots for what everyone's saying. Because I was agreeing with everyone's saying, but I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm having an issue right before that point. And I think you really got to that point. And I think, yeah, if I spend that extra day, you know, moving slow to go fast, um, I would prevent myself getting into situations where I'm like, oh, I thought this would be a week, but actually it's six months. Um, and I think getting ahead of that, that's, that's, that's a really good idea. And yeah, it should totally slow down a little bit more to get that kind of information in. And that way also I can still move fast and I'll identify like, what's the quick one I can do in a week that won't solve the big thing, but get them hungry to actually start wanting to do this planning outside of me. So that's, that's yeah, really helpful. Exactly. Thanks for the, the that for everyone. The only downside to that is that, remember, estimation is a crazy game where you're going to estimate that, oh, it might take this long, and they're going to hear that as, oh, we can definitely get it done in this long, and estimations are always crap, right? So there's estimations, senior managers typically hear them as deadlines, and then we hear them as optimistic, I have no ideas, right? So just managing expectations becomes a really good skill there, um, and communicating that is kind of important. So, yeah. Yeah, let me just add... Um... The, the more you break it down, not just the overall project and the little pieces, but even that process of development, um, the better it's going to go. So, you know, you think smaller than MV MVP, think POC first, right? You get the POC up, then you have to document. You write write a PRD, even if you are not a product manager, you know, because it's, it's a working document and others are going to collaborate on it and it's going to become its own thing. But, you know, and then write the spec and now you have material to use when you uh, are socializing your idea. And when you're saying, oh, this is either gonna be a six month project for me, or it's gonna be a one month project for four people, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, appreciate y'all. Oh. No, 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 go ahead, Mark, go ahead. 
I was going to say, I appreciate you all so much. I, I, I strongly feel like this is going to be an inflection point for my career with this feedback. So I appreciate you all a lot. Thank you, Mark, for asking the question. It's funny because like our team is going through something similar, <laughs> the project that I was like, you know, leading. Um, so that is a question that was very good and the insights were awesome. And I hope everyone who is still watching and stayed beyond the one hour point, like got that because man, there was some fire in the last hour. There really was. Um, okay, so if anyone has a last question, um, I, I thought there was a fun one. How do you convince a pharmaceutical company that they need data science? How do you, how do you convert them to the church of data science um, and that they need it? Would anyone like to take it before we close out? I can, I can go real quick. Okay, cool. Um, so it depends on where in the pharmaceutical company um, it is. So one, understand your population. You know, are they doing like real world evidence stuff? Are they doing drug discovery? Really understand your population um, from there. Kind of what are their main needs uh, regarding that? And this is like a really complex question. So I'm summing up as quickly as I can, like one minute. Um, from there, you know, what, how are they using data today? Um, you know, where are the roadblocks and what's preventing them? Um, so for example, like they may be focused on biostaticians and statistics, not data science, right? They may be, they may be a cultural thing where they think data science, like maybe ML, when they're already doing kind of a lot of data work already. And so what are the roadblocks, uh, to that? And I think, you know, before I can even answer even more, I think it goes back to what other people are saying. It's like, ask, you have to ask a lot of questions. Um, understand what, <laughs> who they are, where their main out outcomes, and how would data be a strategic advantage for them? Um, not just using one data scientist, but actually having like a whole data initiative. Because um, if you just give them one data scientist, that's not going to change anything, especially for a pharmaceutical company. Um, they, they have a lot going on. Um, they're probably going to need a data team. So like, how would a data team position themselves in the market to be even more competitive wherever their outcomes are? Um, and that's like, that's just scratching the surface. It can go way more, but I think we're out of time for me to go into more depth. I, I'm curious about others would think about that, or if I'm the only one to talk in and be ended. Actually, uh, this is a fun uh, shotgun round of how would you convince a company that they need data science operations? Let's get um, a sound bite from everyone here before we close out. Greg, Vin, Santona, Eric, Costa, Russell, now's your time to shine. How would you convince a company? that they need data science operations. Go, go, go. All right, I'll jump in. Ask them first how much data they collect and how much they're paying in database infrastructure and storage costs overall across the business, right? And ask them if they're doing anything with that data. Love it. Next, if let's go to- they're not doing anything, they're gonna buy it. Awesome, let's go to Greg now. Greg, how would you convince a company that they need data science operations? Um, I would start by asking questions based on needs, something like, uh, do you know how much revenue you will have in the next five years and which of the products, which of your product portfolio will contribute to that growth? If the answer is no, and most likely, you know, it's going to be no, then data science is something that can help with that. So it's kind of like surfacing uh, something that they need and then say, okay, data science can do that because, you know, to nowadays, I can't think of a company who uh, uh, should, who cannot work. I can't think of a company who would blatantly say that data is not useful for them in, in today's age. So that's how I would approach it. Awesome, let's go with Russell. What is your pitch? How would you convince a company they need data science? So I would, I would ask them very um, obtusely, uh, 
explain the data ecosystem of your company to your grandmother in three sentences. And if you can't do it, you need to employ someone who can. Awesome. Let's go with Santona. How would you convince a company they need the data science? Greg basically stole my answer. Um, but yeah, I would ask them a bunch of questions about how they're doing, um, you know, depending on, on the product as well, right? Uh, the questions might be relevant to, you know, what their users are doing, their conversion, et cetera, et cetera. If it's a, a different kind of product, um, it's going to vary. But basically, you know, how much do you know about your company and how it's doing and how what the users are wanting? Awesome. Let's go with, wait, Eric, did you, did you speak yet? My tongue-in-cheek answer was to be use peer pressure and tell them that the competitors are all doing it. But if I want to make it more serious, bring donuts to the pitch. I like it. That's spicy. Mr. Vin, uh, we will go ahead and end with you, I think. Take it home. Uh, I'm going to run with Eric's because I think it's awesome. Yeah, you have to tell them, look, look at your competitors. They're going to own you. How do you think they're discovering drugs right now? What do you think? They're doing trial and error like you're doing right now? They're not. They're using machine learning. I mean, seriously, Google it. Read a couple of academic papers. You're going to get crushed in the next two years if you're not using data science for at least what it is that you're building. How is you as a pharmaceutical company not know this? I mean, it's one of those questions that fear of missing out is actually pretty powerful. That's right. Ask them, how do you like to be dunked in the face over and over and over again? Dunk. Uh. Okay, and that will end... The, the data science multi-happy hour. It's been many happy hours. Uh, so thank you everyone for joining, for tuning in. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed the insights. We talked about a lot. We talked about how do you break down a project? Um, we talked about if you're given an example case study, how would you approach it? What would you expect a hiring manager or your business partner to look for? We talked about watches and drugs. Um, no, we, we, we didn't talk about drugs. Um, we just mentioned it and watches multiple times. Uh, lots of good stuff. Okay, so uh, everyone, I will end with Harpreet's, uh, you have one life to live. Don't waste it. Why not Make do something awesome. big? Why not do something big? Thank you for joining. I hope everyone has a good weekend and take care.